You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're thrilled that you're catching up with the message this week. Let us know how we can pray for you. To do so, you can head to our website. That's www.wordoflifeag.org and scroll down to the tile that says Need Prayer. We'd love to stand with you and support you in prayer throughout the week. Come on, let's dive into this week's message from Pastor Tom J.J. Wood. Good morning. Well, great video from Tim. So glad that he was able to do that. So I appreciate that an absolute ton. But can we please, as a church family, one more time, come on, let's honor, recognize, celebrate, appreciate. To all the veterans, so glad and, uh, you know, really uh, recognize and appreciative of your service. And I say this as an immigrant to the United States. I love this country and I appreciate all the service people that uh, make sure that our freedoms uh, are guaranteed to us. It's an absolute um, joy. So appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for your service. Thank you, Tim, again for that. Also in the video, uh, we, you would have seen um, some team members sharing some of their stories. But being a part of the team, if you're here in person, uh, you'll leave here today with one of these. This is just some information about jumping on a team. My encouragement to you is that church is awesome if you turn up and let church happen at you. It's 10 times better if you actually get involved, become a part of the community, become a part of what's going on, feel like you actually have some connections, some people around you, get alongside everybody. So being a part of a team is a key way to do that. So uh, if you grab one of these on the way out and you have some questions, there is a place for you and we would love to help you find a spot to jump in. Um, Another thing I wanted to let you know is this question has come up a few times, so I'll just say directly here now. Uh, One Day to Feed the World, part of the um, uh, uh, missions initiative we uh, committed to with Convo of Hope. Here at the church, we are committed to Convoy of Hope. Megan and I were down uh, in South Carolina with Convoy of Hope last month, had a wonderful time with them, and our partnership with them uh, is strong. We want to continue financing the work that they are doing all over the world. A decision that was made and a conversation that we've started with Convoy of Hope is that rather than doing the One Day to Feed the World focus uh, in November, which is what we have done, We're going to move that towards Easter. And so as part of our Easter services and Easter celebrations, we want to start, um, you know, promoting and encouraging everyone to be a part of One Day to Feed the World, um, you know, as a part of that. So if that's on your mind, if it's something that a question has come up, um, if you wanted to give towards Convoy of Hope, you can do that through the church. Just let us know this giving is to go to Convoy of Hope. We will make sure it gets there. Or, of course, you can go directly to them if you're ready to do that. Otherwise, as a church, we're going to be inviting everyone to be a part of this on Easter, and we're going to make sure everybody knows that um, we are a church that is outward focused. We want to see the whole world uh, met with the message of Jesus and for lives to be transformed that way. Does that sound like a plan? All righty. Okay. So we're going to take some time today and we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so the book of Ecclesiastes, it's in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible or if you've never um, spent any time studying the Bible or if it's still new to you, um, the word Bible is actually a Latin word and it essentially means books. It could mean library. Uh, And so essentially the Bible is a library of books. There's 66 books the way that we've got them divided now. And one of these books is the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you were to sit down and read it from start to finish, it would probably take 20 to 30 minutes, depending on uh, how quickly or how slowly you uh, decide to read and if you want to stop and take notes and so on. But I would guess about 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, It's also worth saying that uh, the Bible Project, which is a great organization that, uh, you know, we celebrate a lot here at the church, they made two great videos on the book of Ecclesiastes, about seven or eight minutes each. So if you have a chance to have an hour this week to read the book of Ecclesiastes from start to finish and maybe even check out those two Bible Project videos, I'm going to say that's an hour well spent. 
But there's a specific passage from Ecclesiastes that stuck with me, and I wanted to look at with the church, but it's helpful to think about the big picture of the book. And so this is how the book starts. So I want to share with you one of the first verses of how the book starts, and it sets the tone for where the whole book is headed. So the first verse we're going to get to is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting verse 2. Verse 2, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Now, the word meaningless in the original Hebrew is said five times in this section, not just two as we have it in English, but it's also translated differently in different English translations. So I've got three more English translations of that verse to share with you. This is from the NASB. Futility of futilities, says the preacher. Futility of futilities, all is futile. And then from the Common English Bible, perfectly pointless, says the teacher. Perfectly pointless, everything is pointless. And then from the New King James Version, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So we have meaningless, futile, pointless, vanity. Now in the Hebrew, the word that's used here to talk about whether it's meaningless or futility or vanity or pointless is similar to the idea of either being smoke or a vapor. Something that appears to have substance and form, but it's really nothing substantial. It's nothing truly meaningful. It's nothing that is really counts for anything. It's almost like a Christmas present that is just wrapping paper and nothing inside. Another illustration that I heard this week is that um, if ever you've um, got a big thing of cotton candy, if your kids were anything like mine, love big thing of cotton candy, it looks like, oh, here is a big thing of food. Once you start biting into it, you see there is zero substance to it. It's just here and gone. It, it's nothing. It, it's a Christmas present. It's just wrapping. There's no gift inside. It's that smoke. It's trying to catch smoke. It's vapor. There's no substance to it. And the theme of being meaningless and futile Questions about life, pointless, and vanity, it runs throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And the author of the book of Ecclesiastes describes essentially a cynical old person, the preacher or teacher that we have in English translations. And the teacher takes us on this journey to consider some of the mysteries of life. Why is life the way that it is? And the teacher will talk about observations that he's made through life, about things being confusing or unjust or frustrating, the devastation, unfairness. And it's quite the journey, and I want to make sure it's known that it's not all miserable. There's ups and downs that we can see in the book of Ecclesiastes, and there are signs of optimism and pessimism both. But you and I as readers or hearers of the book of Ecclesiastes, we're supposed to identify with these observations that the teacher's making. We're supposed to identify with the responses to life, and they're supposed to mirror our human experience as we go through life not all of the book is negative, but it certainly is a blunt look at life, and it asks some daunting questions. Here's a few examples of this scattered throughout the book, and there's plenty more, but these are the ones that I landed on. From chapter 2, verse 13, I thought wisdom is better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise can see where they are going, but fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. So I said to myself, since I will end up the same as the fool, what is the value of all my wisdom? This is all so meaningless. Chapter 5, verse 13. There is another serious problem I have seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as on the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. 
And this too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. And the next one is the verse that started all this for me this week, and the verse that really leapt out to me. I'll share it with you now. This is 9 verse 11. I have observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. And those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. And as I read that and started thinking about it, it's very easily, it can feel like that. As the teacher is writing this down and it's recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes for us, I think we can all feel like this. That life is just meaningless and futile. It's vanity. We're trying to grab a hold of things and there's no substance for us to grab onto. Uh, something that came into my mind is my favorite board game is Monopoly. Anybody else like play Monopoly? So Megan hates playing Monopoly with me because it brings out something in me. An evil competitiveness that is not normally there. I don't regret it a bit. But the reason, reason I love Monopoly compared to all the other games is that there really is a mix of skill and chance. There's a, a strategy to it. There's a tactic to it. There's a, a level of, you know, play, you know, sportsmanship about it. You know, you try and get this housing. You have to conserve your cash flow and try and think ahead and try and make smart deals with the other people you're playing with and, you know, all those kind of things, right? But everyone is subjected to the dice. And that picture came to me as I read this verse. It's like, you're right. You can prepare. You can train. You can do all the right things. But still, there are those things outside of our control. There are those things that we can't wrap our hands around. There's those things that, that we can't wrestle down, that we can't control, that we can't submit to our will, that we can't make happen the way we want it to happen. And oftentimes a question that I've heard many, many times, and I've asked many, many times, and I'm sure you have too, why do bad things happen to good people? It's heartbreaking to see this. And as a people and as a culture and as human beings, a part of this world, we hate seeing this. We hate seeing the injustice of it all. We know it's wrong when bad things are happening to good people. It bothers us when we see it, and it happens often. Now, the Bible, and not just Ecclesiastes, it doesn't hide the reality about the confusion, injustice, frustration, devastation, and unfairness that we see in the world around us. John 16 Verse 33, here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. This is Jesus talking. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. I would wager this is the most unpopular promise in the Bible. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Nobody's putting that on a magnet and putting it on the fridge. Nobody's getting a coffee cup with that. No hipsters getting that tattooed. It is the most unpopular promise on the Bible. Of the early church, for the first 200 years of the early church's existence, the followers of Jesus often suffered extreme persecution. The earliest followers of Jesus for 200 years were often social outcasts. And for 2,000 years since the empty tomb, Christians have been hanging on to Jesus' encouragement, take heart because I have overcome the world. Many of the Psalms, they deal with this same idea. The Psalms is a collection of songs and poems, and many of the Psalms start very negatively but they end with massive and passionate praise towards God, a huge reminder that in the throes of human emotion and all the circumstances we endure, God is still good, He's still in control, and still worthy of praise. Amen. Amen. 
But the Psalms, just like Ecclesiastes, just like Jesus, they don't shy away from the darkest moments of life. The writers of the Psalms would understand why we're often asking, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is it like this? The Psalms definitely echo Jesus' words that life has many trials and sorrows. And just as Jesus makes sure his followers remember that he has overcome the world, the Psalms make sure we remember the goodness, power, and majesty of God. Ecclesiastes is somewhat similar. The book explores the confusing and unfair observations and experiences of life, and our observation and experiences matches the teachers. I'll read that verse to you again, the one that really stood out to me, 9-11. I have observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race, and the strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy, and those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It is all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. These observations, these experiences, they lead us to ask that question, why do bad things happen to good people? I want to propose today that perhaps a better question is, in a world where bad things do happen to good people, how should we navigate life? In a world where bad things do happen to good people, where it's unfair, it's unjust, it's confusing, how should we navigate a life of faith? The answer from the teacher in Ecclesiastes, you can find it in chapter 11, verse 9. Young people, it's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember, and this word remember will keep coming back, that you must give an account to God for everything you do. So refuse to worry and keep your body healthy. But remember that youth with a whole life before you is meaningless. Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor, other translations say, remember again. Remember him in your youth before you grow old and say, life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him before the light of the sun, moon, and stars is dim to your old eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble, and before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding, and before your eyes, the women looking through the windows see dimly. Remember him before the doors to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. In the middle of the meaningless or the futile, the pointless, the vanity, remember him. And what does it mean to remember him? Well, the author of Ecclesiastes takes some time to unravel it for us. Remember that we will give an account to him for everything we've done. Remember him during the excitement of youth with passion and hopes and dreams. Remember him before we get too old and we're full of regrets. Remember him before the door to life's opportunities is closed. Despite the confusion, the injustice, the frustration, the devastation, and the unfairness, remember him. And Jesus said something similar, and on the same vein, used this illustration at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock, Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey, it is foolish like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rain and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Ecclesiastes, the conclusion of the teacher, is to remember him is to build our life on that rock, to keep God in the forefront of our minds, to shape our thinking and our perception and our understanding around Him, to build our lives on who He is and the promises He's raised. And to help us 
kind of think through this. I've got four things. I've called them four blocks to remember. And hopefully this is helpful as we sort of think through this. And it's easy to say remember him, but hopefully this helps put some legs on it and makes it practical. But the first thing is block number one to remember is constant trust. Constant trust. Matthew 8, it's in the life of Jesus. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up, rebuked the wind and waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and waves obey him. Now this moment in the life of Jesus where he calms the storm over the lake, it's relatively early in Jesus' ministry, and the disciples, at this point, they had seen Jesus perform miracles. They had heard Jesus teach, but apparently Jesus being able to control the weather was beyond their estimation of him. We often hear about Jesus being the role model to his followers. But how does that work when there's a storm? How does that work when life is unfair? How does that work when it's all going crazy around us? The example from Jesus is to have a deep peace. And as we read, Jesus comes to bring peace and calm to the storm. We had a moment uh, recently in the Woodhouse. Uh, so um, Megan, one night, I kind of got an SOS and she was having an extreme pain and difficulty breathing, was doubled over, and I was all kinds of freaked out because this will not surprise you, but I am not a doctor. Um, and I had no idea what was going on, and she was saying there's a pain here and barely able to breathe and was doubled over, and I was freaking out. Um, you know, and I know that your heart is not here, but it's also in the same neighborhood, so I'm like, okay, what is happening? She couldn't breathe, and so we called an ambulance. The end of the story is that it was Megan's gallbladder, and it has since been removed, and uh, that pesky piece of flesh has been tossed in the trash somewhere, but anyway, people have been quick to tell me that if your gallbladder is playing up, it is the worst pain. Many ladies have said it is worse than childbirth, and I believe them. So Megan's doubled over in pain, and so I call the ambulance, and the ambulance comes to the house. At this point in the evening, the twins were already in bed. Elijah, he's 10, he was still up, and so Megan's parents came over, and they were going to hang with him so I could go up to the hospital with Megan. There's an ambulance outside the house. The lights are flashing and everything. My one concern, apart from getting Megan in the ambulance safely, of course, my next concern was making sure that Elijah didn't freak out. I wanted my son to be calm. I didn't want him to be all kinds of put out, all kinds of off kilter, all kinds of off balance, all kinds of bugging out because we're ushering mom into an ambulance. So I asked the ambulance driver, can you please kill the lights? I don't want to upset my son. Grandparents made sure that Elijah was in the back part of the house and wasn't able to see the ambulance out of the front window. All because I wanted my son to have a level of calm. And I'm sure parents get this. When it's all going crazy, you don't want that crazy to transfer to the kids. You want them to see you being calm so it brings them down. The teachers get this. If there's ever a crisis in the classroom, you kind of want to just project a level of calm to bring down the calm among the students. I think this is how we need to look at Jesus when life is going crazy. I'm bugging out. I'm freaking out. But he's calm. He's ready to bring calm to the storm. And I should take my lead from him instead of freaking out. If my eyes are truly on him, then in the middle of the storm, I can have that peace. In the middle of the floods, I can have a house that's built on solid rock. And if I look to Jesus and see he's not freaking out, that should tell me something. My confidence and trust should be on the one that's got all the peace in the world 
and the one that is perfectly calm and bringing calm to the storm. Second thing, second block to remember, daily wisdom. Daily wisdom to remember God in the middle of the meaningless, daily wisdom. I've got this definition of wisdom for you. Definition is distinct, uh, wisdom is distinct from knowledge or information. Wisdom enables strong planning, decision-making, and understanding of situations. Wisdom may come by personal experience, observation, or learning. True wisdom is founded in the fear and appreciation of God, and He is our ongoing source of wisdom. Amen. I heard about a, a guy recently. It was a small store owner who was being pressured to sell his store to the owners of a large department store who had bought every building on the block except his. Frustrated by the man's refusal to sell, they eventually opened their huge store on either side of the small one with a big banner running from one side to the other proclaiming in huge letters, Grand Opening, with his store stuck in the middle with the sign hanging over it. Feeling equally frustrated, the small store owner did finally outsmart the large department store Below the grand opening sign, across the front of his small store, the man put up a small banner saying, main entrance. <laughs> Another man was sitting underneath a walnut tree, looking at nature and questioning whether there was a crater who made all this. He thought about the tree he was sitting under so big and strong, and yet it only produced his walnuts. Then he thought about pumpkins and how heavy they are, but they grow on weak vines that cannot even hold the weight of a pumpkin. The man said, God, that was a foolish thing to do, having a tiny nut on such a strong tree, but a massive pumpkin on a puny vine like that. That was a foolish thing to do. Just then, a walnut dropped from the tree and bumped him right on the head. The man then declared, oh God, your wisdom for which fruit to put where is so noble and just. <laughs> it's my observation and experience in Monopoly you got to get those pinks and oranges as early and as quickly as you can because the houses and hotels are cheaper than the other properties and those babies pay off quick. <laughs> Wisdom. Learning as you go. Growing and understanding. Learning how to make decisions well. Learning how to conduct ourselves in all kinds of life situations. And what's interesting is I knew as I was preparing for today that I, I wanted to share a story about wisdom just to sort of make the point of, you know, wisdom and hopefully something funny. And so I have a couple of resources that I go to, a couple of books that I have. And I use Kindle, generally electronic books rather than good old-fashioned paper copies. And so I'm able to do a keyword search in the different Kindle books that I have. And there's a number that I use to try and draw, uh, you know, these things from. And I'm searching in all the you know, top leadership expert books that I have, and I'm searching in all the, the books written by the, the loudest voices in Christianity that I have, and I'm searching the word wisdom or wise. And I'm telling you, it is unbelievable how little amount of information I could find. And it made me wonder if, if the, the, the experts, the people that I look up to and people that I look to to learn these things from, and the people that are the loudest voices in Christianity, the, the pastors and the church leaders and the academics that have got a great platform to bring godliness to the world, they're not saying much about wisdom. And it made me stop and think, I want, is this something that we need to spend more time on as churches talking about and thinking about and considering is the role that wisdom plays in our lives? The ability to navigate through life, the ability to think through things, the ability to make wise decisions, the ability to have an openness to learn as we go, to want to be sharper and more astute than we are this time last year, to observe the patterns in the way that the world works and be able to make decisions accordingly. 
Is wisdom something that we need to spend more time talking about? That wisdom, that fear and appreciation of who God is, that he truly is our source of wisdom. Well, I would certainly say so as we seek to remember him. Third thing, block to remember number three, a lifelong commitment. I've shared this before, but the best definition of faith that I've heard and come across is faith is believing in and committing to a promise. Faith is believing in and committing to a promise. And to remember him, I would say we should have a lifelong commitment and that mentality of a lifelong commitment. I would even say that commitment is the unsung hero of faith. We appreciate, we respect, we look up to big, bold expressions of faith. But there's a lot to be said for quietly remaining faithful and committed for years in every season. There's a lot to be said for a determination to remember him, to remain, no matter what the adventure brings. Even when the promise from John 16 comes to pass that here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, a deep commitment remains. The verse from Ecclesiastes we've already read, but remember that youth with a whole life before you is meaningless. It's filled with empty promises. Life in front of us, is, it can be filled with the illusion that cotton candy is a gourmet meal. But don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say life is not pleasant anymore. The teacher here is imploring young people to set their path straight, not just for the short term, but for the rest of their lives. And of course, we understand that this is true for everybody, not simply the young people, to set our course on following Jesus and to keep to that narrow path and to start as soon as possible instead of living life picking up baggage and regrets, but rather remember him, set our sights on him, and commit to the long haul for the rest of our lives, a lifelong commitment. Fourth thing, fourth thing, eternal perspective. The first thing was a constant trust, daily wisdom, lifelong commitment, and eternal perspective. As a pastor in Texas, I was listening to one of his messages not long ago. His name's Greg Laurie, and he's pastoring in Dallas. And he was doing a message on the subject of heaven. And as I was listening to the message on heaven, he posed a question to his church that I thought was really provocative and really got me thinking, is that if heaven is heaven, and it is the eternity, do we think about it, talk about it enough? In churches, as Christians, as believers, do we talk about eternity? Do we talk about heaven enough? Are we discussing it as much as we should? Are we thinking about it as much as we should? The answer is possibly no. It's possibly not on our minds as much as it was on the early church's minds, on the New Testament writer's minds. It's probably not something that we're thinking about. It's not motivating and driving us as much as it is many of the people that we see in the New Testament. There was a time not long after Megan and I got married. Uh, tragically, Megan's brother passed away. And so we were living in Australia, and Megan was in the midst of grieving, extremely difficult time. We're all the way in Australia, distant from family and all those kind of things. Very difficult time for her and trying to navigate that grief. There was a song that was very popular in our church at the time, and it came as a great source of comfort for Megan. I want to share this with you. This is some of the lyrics from a song called You Hold Me Now by Hillsong. In this life I would stand through my joy and my pain, knowing there's a greater day, there's a hope that never fades, where your name is lifted high and forever praises rise for the glory of your name. I'm believing for the day where the wars and violence cease. All creation lives in peace. Let the songs of heaven rise to you alone. Amen. Now, not for a second does this mean that we automatically and magically stop missing loved ones, but it does help to change perspective. 
My kids are at the age now where they're often asking me about heaven and, you know, dad, talk about the, you know, the streets of gold and is there going to be this there and, you know, they can have Nerf guns in heaven and all the stuff. My standard answer for them is the standard answer that I've used in youth ministry for years and it's simply that no one goes to heaven and feels they've missed out. There's no constructive criticism needed in heaven. There's no feedback forms needed in heaven. There's no suggestion box. It's absolute perfection. But as I get older, I find that I'm less interested in what's in heaven, and I'm more interested in what's not in heaven. I read this verse to you from Revelation 22. It's talking about heaven. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now and among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Amen. Gold streets, sounds great. A great big pearly gate, sounds awesome. All of my favorite food, wonderful. But no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All those things gone forever, that brings me joy. Not what's in heaven, but what's going to be gone and done and over forever. No more death, no more sorrow, crying or pain. That changes my perspective. And as we find ourselves asking, why do bad things happen to good people? The eternal perspective reminds us, in heaven, bad things won't happen to anyone anymore. Peace and joy will be unaffected by the hurt and pain of the world. And that is the eternity that Jesus promised and died for. This side of eternity, we may identify and understand the sentiment of the teacher in Ecclesiastes that everything is meaningless, that everything is completely meaningless. We may be wrapped up and we may see and observe the confusion and injustice and frustration, the devastation, the unfairness in the world around us. But hopefully we can have the courage to ask, in a world where bad things do happen to good people, how should we navigate life? Take the advice from the teacher and remember him. To have the Lord shape our minds and understanding. For him to be in the forefront of our thinking. The way that Jesus illustrated by building our lives on the rock instead of the sand. And that when the storms come, we can draw from the peace that we see in Jesus. And that we can have in our minds as part of this remembering, a constant trust, daily wisdom, a lifelong commitment, an eternal perspective. I want to share with you something about the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is an Old Testament feast. And it was initiated by God with the Israelites before they came into the promised land. And it's celebrated throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament and is still celebrated today. It's also called uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or Shelters or Booths. And in Deuteronomy 16, we're told it's an annual festival. And we're told specifically that it's a time of joy. And it's held at the time of year in uh, normally October, September time when the harvest comes in. And for a community that's centered around agriculture and farming, harvest is enormous. The harvest shows God's blessing and His provision. It also shows appreciation for each other and their hard work that we've all come together, we've all played our part, we've all worked hard to make this harvest that we're now celebrating, now able to enjoy possible. And the key feature of the feast was spending the week living in a temporary shelter or a booth or a tabernacle. And the point is to remember that there was a period of time where the Israelites, they lived in these temporary shelters, they wandered in the wilderness. 
The point is to remember that this harvest that they're enjoying now is only possible because of God's faithfulness, that he delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered them through the Red Sea as it split in two and they escaped the army of Pharaoh. And then they spent 40 years in the wilderness and finally they got to the promised land so they can enjoy harvest. And on the Sabbath that falls in the week of this festival, the synagogues will read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's fascinating to me that during a festival that is rooted in joy and celebration, the time is taken to read a book of the Bible that brings credible exploration and honesty about the confusion, the injustice, the frustrations, and the devastation, and the unfairness of life. At a time of joy, time is taken to say, hold on, we also need to consider the brokenness of the world that we're in, the hurt that we observe the unfairness, the bad things happening to good people. Because we don't just remember God on the mountaintops, but also in the valleys. The festival, Celebrating Harvest, it's a year of hard work. And I'm sure that year has been filled with challenges. But here they are, on the other side, enjoying the harvest, enjoying the goodness of God, celebrating being freed from slavery, celebrating the Red Sea parting in two, Honoring God for His faithfulness in 40 years as the Israelites wandered the desert, constantly dealing with the consequence of sin, fighting other nations, trying to cling on to the promises of God. The festival is on the other side of all of that, but still, there's a pause. We're going to read the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to consider that the life can be unfair, it can be confusing, it can be full of injustice, but we are going to remember Him. We are going to remember Him with a constant trust, coming to Him for daily wisdom, a lifelong commitment, and an eternal perspective. I gotta, if one person claps, we all have to. I have a couple of questions for you, and I'll ask you to write these down, and maybe there's a chance this week for you to think through these and pray through these. The first one is, have you thought about your faith as a lifelong commitment? Have you thought about your faith as a lifelong commitment? Have you decided deep in your heart that you know what, whatever the season is, ups, downs, indifferent, whether things are going my way, whether it's unfair, whether it's unjust, whether I just need a seven to land on go and get double $200, or whether I get a six and land on boardwalk with a hotel, I'm committed to him. Just so you know, monopoly is just a metaphor. I don't actually think anyone's faith is shaken because you land on boardwalk. Just going to put that there. But if you decided deep in your heart, if you decided deep, this is a lifelong commitment, ups, downs, no matter what, I'm committed to Him. I'm focused on who He is. I'm grabbing onto His promises. I'm believing He's going to bring peace to my storm. I'm believing that I'm building my life on Him. And I'm building my life on sand, on solid rock. Not sound like the foolish man. I'm not going to freak out in the boat when the storms come, like the disciples. But I'm going to learn and lean on him. Second thing, how would the way you remember him change if you thought more about eternity? How would the way you remember him change if you thought more about eternity? You know, the message of Jesus addresses the question of eternity. The Bible teaches and Jesus teaches that not a single one of us can claim to be good enough to earn our spot in heaven. 
Eternity separated from God is something I hate thinking about. The Bible calls it hell, and it's what we all deserve. I hate thinking about it. It fills me with dread. I hate the idea that this is the destiny for anybody. But we are all disqualified from a relationship with God. The good news is that being motivated by love, God became humanity to pay humanity's price, to take the punishment of sin by becoming humanity, becoming the Son on the cross, paying the price that you and I could never, ever pay. The Son on the cross died, and that punishment meant that we could heal our broken relationship with God and that we could spend eternity with Him by placing our faith, trust, and confidence in Him in a lifelong commitment to Him as Lord and Him alone. We're trusting that on the cross, Jesus paid the price. And because He rose again three days later, believing He defeated death, so our relationship with God can be restored and our eternity can be with Him. This is the good news of Jesus. It is the life-changing message of Jesus. It's the message of Jesus that changed my life 18 years ago now. 18 years ago, I made the decision to become a Christian, and it is easily the best decision I've ever made. In the past 18 years, there have been ups, there have been downs, but I've never once regretted my decision to follow Him. I want to put that same invitation out to anyone here today. I don't know what brought you into church today. You may be here every week, or this may be the first time you've ever set foot in this building. Maybe the first time you've ever went to any church anywhere, but you're here. And I wonder if something from today just grabbed a hold of your heart, whether it's one of the worship songs the team led us through earlier or one of the Bible verses that I read, but something has got you to a point where you know that you know God is for real. You know that you know that this message of Jesus is true. You know that Jesus went to the cross and he did it. He endured the pain, the suffering, so that you could be forgiven and that you could come into relationship with God. And I want to give you a chance to pray a very simple prayer. And I'm going to believe with you that that prayer is a first step in you beginning a life following Jesus. So I invite everyone here just to close your eyes and bow your heads. Let's just give some privacy and discretion to everyone around you. And I promise I give you my word. We're not going to do anything weird or anything to make anybody uncomfortable. But when we pray in a moment together, I'd love to know who we're praying for. So if this is you today, if you're willing to say, you know what, Tom? Yes, I'm ready to start following Jesus. I want to start today. I'd love to know who we're praying for. So if you could just put your hand in the air online, you can just push the button that says, I raise my hand. I'd love to know who we're praying for. Amen. Anybody else here? Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Well, come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate people making the best decision any of us could ever make. Amen. Well, we're going to pray a prayer together. The words are going to be on the screen. And I hope if you've uh, put your hand up a moment ago that you pray this prayer, believing that there is power to pray a prayer like this that is life-changing. Come on, everybody, let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Let's congratulate those people making that decision. Amen.
All right, let's welcome back Annie and Andy. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. For more resources and ways to get involved, visit our website. That's www.wordoflifeag.org.